This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. This is a conversation I have been looking forward to since the book came out a little bit over a year ago, I think. Yes. Uh, we're going to talk about the atonement, and this is so very important. Uh, this is a, a a topic that requires thoughtfulness and and precision, and it's one that that I feel that we kind of assume we know what's going on in the concept of atonement, and we don't necessarily take the time to look beyond whatever primary sources are, or, or, or sources are floating around us. Um, I grew up in the Protestant church, and there's all kinds of, of ideas and different theologies about how God comes to save us. We know that, uh, and there's a commonality and an ecumenical commonality on the fact that God became man in Jesus Christ. He became flesh, and he took on our flesh, and he lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross to save us for our sins and to reconcile us back to the Father. We can say that, and we all rec- probably all recognize that that framework, but the, the way that we explain how the redeeming work of Christ actually did the redeeming can, can wildly diverge. And I think that if we're not careful, we can get very improper ideas about who God is and what our relationship to him is based on our concept of how we are redeemed. Um, yes. There's a, there's a song that I was familiar with. I never really liked the song, but there's a song that that's in the Protestant uh, community and it has made its way into even some of our liturgical uh, resources. So, for instance, in um, the Breaking Bread Missalette that a lot of parishes have, they have this song called In Christ Alone. And about, oh, the, I think the third verse, you get the, um, there's a lot of really positive statements about the the passion of Christ. But along the third verse, you get this line, and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And it seems always so odd to me to sing that, even as uh, in my previous tradition as a Protestant, but even more so as a Catholic, because that idea is is not at all in keeping with the theology of of the ages, what what the Church believes now and has always believed. And I so love this book that we're talking about today. The book, by the way, is Atonement. Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology by Dr. Margaret Turek. I realize uh, at this moment that I have not yet introduced you, so I'm going to take a moment to do. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Margaret Turek, who's the ad- academic dean and professor of dogmatics at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. We're so thrilled to have you here uh, today and talking about your book on the atonement with Ignatius Press. Thank you, Tio. I, I didn't notice that you failed to introduce me. My good Carmelite training, you know, we're <laughs> always, always prefer anonymity. May I begin with an admission of a very personal experience that is at the very root of this project? You did mention my time with uh, the Carmelites. I uh, was a Carmelite sister for six years. I had three more years to go before making perpetual vows. 
But I want to explain a bit how it is that I chose to enter a Carmelite community, how it turned out that God led me to depart and yet continue along my vocational trajectory. Uh, And this trajectory actually bore fruit in the form of this book. Tiel, when I was a young woman many, many years ago, uh, a few days shy of my 21st birthday, I was on retreat, a silent retreat. And to this day, I don't remember uh, what was said during the retreat conferences. I'm sure whatever was said primed me for what followed. The retreat after three days, a triduum of sorts, after three days, silence was broken and we all, the retreatants, were gathered in a small room and permitted to talk. Once we began to chatter, uh, I, out of politeness, simply turned my gaze toward my friend who was sitting to my left. I, I turned simply to watch her, to turn toward her as she spoke. Yet my eyes happened to uh, glance uh, towards the wall, the opposite wall on which hung a crucifix. Now, T.L., up until then, um, I had seen crucifixes above every chalkboard during my uh, Catholic upbringing. You know, I went to Catholic schools. I wore crucifix around my neck. I do not know why at that moment, quite out of the blue, To paraphrase St. Augustine, the eyes of my heart were healed. And I saw God in Christ crucified. I won't go into detail. What's important to me is that it was in beholding the pierced one that my eyes were healed. And I began to see the God of Jesus Christ, the God and Father who's rich in mercy, to see him clearly while I'm beholding his son crucified. And I came to realize in a moment that I had been under the influence of a distorted image of God the Father. Mm-hmm. I had been living under its influence, and we can talk more about the negative impact of, of such a distorted image of the Father. But in finally, instantaneously, sort of seeing God the Father, while seeing Christ crucified, facing the cross event. The, as I said, the eyes of my heart were healed, and I became freed for my vocation. A vocation that never, in a certain respect, never wanted to uh, remove itself from the stance of contemplation. I realized the power of God's self-revelation. I realized on my end the power of the contemplative gaze or the importance of the contemplative gaze. And so given that experience of encountering God, the God who is rich in mercy, precisely while uh, gazing upon the pierced one, uh, I wanted to know this God ever more deeply. And I believe the path thereto would entail being drawn ever more deeply into the mystery of the cross event, because that's the locus of God's epiphany. Mm -hmm. And and this can all be uh, biblically uh, supported. This is not simply a detour into private revelation, and and we're, uh, I'm, you know, uh, running down or 
diving down into a, a rabbit hole that leads nowhere. This experience of seeing God in Christ crucified is everywhere corroborated in the New Testament and prepared for already in the Old. And so when I, I wanted to follow this vocation to know my God uh, more deeply, I knew I had to follow Christ and him crucified. And I, I entered a Carmelite community so that uh, I would live a rule of life designed to draw me into uh, uh, this, this ongoing mystery to participate in the cross event and thereby know Christ and his Father within the bond of the Holy Spirit of love uh, evermore uh, deeply, as I said. So that's why I entered the Carmelite community. Uh, I, I discerned out after six years because my calling uh, was to lead others. Mm-hmm more was to lead others to, to, to heal the eyes of their hearts, to see God in Christ crucified, and to see in the first place the face of the Father. And so that entailed more study and teaching. And, and anyway, then I end up at, at the seminary at St. Patrick's, and I'm, I'm so very blessed to be there. I, I hope this wasn't a, a detour that wasted the time of your audience. But I I wanted to make this real and let them understand that the book is not merely a product of book learning. Well, and I love that you did that because there are so many books out there, even uh, books that deal with with the important questions of theology that do treat them in in an intellectual or a scholastic kind of a way. And you are your formation as a Carmelite is evident throughout this book, that there is a deep spirituality to the questions that you're posing here. And there in your introduction, you spoke of um, that distorted image of, yes. of God the Father. And I want to sit there for just a moment because I don't think we necessarily spend a lot of time realizing how important our image of God the Father is, um, specifically in relation to to uh, redemption and to the atonement. Because if our view of God is that of, uh, of our picture of jealousy or our picture of anger or wrath, then not only do we have a, a, a very difficult time relating to God the Father, we do relate to him in, in fear, and there's really no other way to do that when you're, when you're thinking of an omnipotent God who's also wrathful. But you also have a distorted view of of what sin is and what our responsibility in that relationship to God is, everything that we do in our Christianity, the questions of duty and obligation, uh, questions of of, uh, holiness and walking in righteousness, all of those get turned on their heads and turned into some kind of uh, an attempt to appease a frightful God that, that is not, you know, not what, our faith has to offer us. And it's not the God that Christ revealed to us. And so I I hear so many ex-Catholics, so many fallen away Catholics who talk about, I never really knew God's love, or I really never knew Jesus as a Catholic. And they either uh, become Protestant or they they go to to no religious affiliation as they kind of deconstruct those ideas and try to find any kind of healthy picture of themselves. Um, 
all of that stems from that distorted image of God the Father that you were talking about. So walk us through, um, you talked of your vocation as um, having experienced that healing of your eyes to also teach that and bring that to others. So bring us to that place. How do we heal our vision of God? And what's a proper picture that we can have of God the Father? All right. Um, My reference to healing the eyes of our hearts um, is, as I said, it's a a paraphrase of my favorite uh, words of St. Augustine from his uh, 88th sermon. And it's our one, Augustine says this, our one task in life. Now, TL, this isn't just, you know, I'll put this on your bucket list in case you get around to it. Augustine says our one task in life is to heal the eyes of our heart so that we can see God. And Augustine does not mean in the first place the beatific vision. Mm -hmm. He means to see God even now and in Christ and him crucified. Jesus, at his Last Supper, said the same, in effect to uh, Philip, you know, have I been with you all this time and you don't know me? To know me is to know my Father. To see me is to see my Father. And in seeing the Father in me, you will be moved to conform yourself, transform your life into his mirror image. What I want to get at from the outset, TL, and I develop this theme like a a thread that runs throughout the book because it runs throughout sacred scripture and throughout the 2,000 years of the history of the church. It's this, this dynamic that God created us as his well, to be his sons in the sun. He created us to beget us by grace, to be his living images, his living icons in this world. And the way he begets his likeness in us is by showing us himself by disclosing to us his way of being God. And and you uh, mentioned earlier a few of God's attributes. God's way of being omnipotent, all-powerful. God's way of judging. God's way of being wise, of being just, of being beautiful and good. Okay. Jesus himself says in again, the Gospel of John. This is John 5, verses 19 and 20. And it is, it is key. It's, it's uh, uh, the, the linchpin, I, I think, for the, the entire understanding this, uh, of this mystery of atonement. Well, Jesus will say, I, the son, I do nothing of myself. I do only what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, 
I do likewise in imitation of the Father, then in mirroring fashion. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he himself does. What we see here is the hidden dynamic of love between Father and Son. It's a dynamic uh, of the way in which the Father begets his living image, the way in which the Father fathers his living icon. The Father takes the first step in showing himself, and what he shows is, is a way of loving. The Father uh, he he shows he loves me and shows me everything that he himself does this is the father takes the initiative in this relationship of love and interplay of love between father and son the father's initiative involves this sort of disclosure of his paternal heart this communication of his paternal love and it's an exhaustive love, as Jesus says. The Father shows me everything that he does. And it's the, on the Son's side, in seeing the Father's love thus shown, an exhaustive, unreserved love for his beloved. The Son is moved to love likewise, to do all that he sees the Father doing. And, and by the way, T.L., all that he sees the father doing is love, mm -hmm. love in its paternal shape, in its paternal form. All right. You had asked, why is this healing the eyes of our hearts so important? It's because it's important to living sonship itself. Sonship uh, entails this, this stance of being beloved with eyes open and healed and turned toward the Father, seeing his self showing, seeing the way that he is, the, the, the way of paternal love. And in seeing, we are moved to conform our lives accordingly. One image that comes to mind is uh, of you think of um, a magnet that has a certain shape. And if iron filings, when they're exposed to that magnet, they're going to be drawn to it and configure themselves to the very shape of the magnet. Paternal love, the love of the Father, is the archetypal love. It's the original shape of even divine love within the Trinity. When paternal love is, exposes itself, shows itself, discloses itself in turning toward the sun, sonship, a filial way of being, is drawn to configure itself to mirror paternal love. Its filial love is complementary love, mirroring love, imaging love. Now, this is seen, this pattern of paternal love and filial love, let's say modeling love and mirroring love, uh, generative love and engendered love. It's already in play, TL, in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. where we see 
it in an, with ever increasing clarity, the Lord, Yahweh, Adonai, disclosing himself to Israel, whom he regards as his firstborn, his son, his beloved. The relationship between God and Israel is, is a paternal filial relationship, and it lives by this interplay of love, an interplay that begins with, the, with paternal love, taking the initiative, disclosing its way of being, being love, paternal love, that is meant to engender and has the power to engender its imaging response. Therefore, as we know, in both places in the Old Covenant where the before the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words are given, first, Yahweh sums up how he's shown himself to be God. He sums up, he shows Israel in the person of Moses everything that he's done thus far. Now, notice the allusion to John 5, 19, 20. The Father shows the Son everything that he does. Already in the Old Testament, Yahweh is showing, I have liberated you, therefore you must adapt. I have done this, therefore you must do. I have done whatever I have done, so you must do. So every commandment that Yahweh utters to Israel, it's a word of love that is, is, what shall I say, instructing Israel on how to mirror the character of God and thus fulfill its own vocation to be God's living icon, to live out divine sonship in this fallen world. Now, we're probably running out of time, you see. No, so I, I want to stop there for just a moment and yeah. look at at. Uh, the uh, we're talking about the importance of having your the eyes yes. healed and seeing yes. God as He is, and let's stay there in, in a moment in the Exodus because we we see two different pictures, uh, two different perceptions of God. You have the the people of Israel who have been delivered out of Egypt, who are standing at the base of Sinai, and they see God on the mountain. They see the the, the yes. cloud and the thunder, and they're their perception of God in that moment is is a frightful one. That God is out to uh, to get us, and and we have to protect ourselves from God as much as we can with layers. And I think that even today we find ourselves with it. If we have an unhealed picture of God, we construct yes. layers, whether it be even theological layers that that we think might insulate us from from God, uh, or, or processes or procedures in our own personal yes. spirituality yes. that, that keep us insulated. So we have yes. that picture. Yes. And then you have Moses who sees the exact same thing. He sees the, the thunder and the lightning and the everything else. And his request is God, let me see your face. Yes. 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 <laughs> let me see your face. Mm -hmm. And in the seeing too, with Moses, it's in seeing that he also receives his commission, his mission. So and and for uh, the revelation of the Father, that's where yes. his the name is revealed to him. Yes, and I love I love this this twofoldness in the stance of the beloved Son. Moses is the first great prophet, the one who stands in the place of the beloved, who is to represent God as a son is to represent the Father before the world, before the nation. 
And it, this twofoldness is evident in that moment as well. In seeing God, there comes a responsibility, a mission. You're turned then in seeing God, God will turn you toward the world and send you forth. Mm-hmm. And poor Moses then, <laughs> no, sustained by this original vision of God, he must, to the best of, of his ability, sustained by grace, represent God's character to a people that, as you say, see God wrongly, are, are still uh, uh, protecting themselves from it, uh, are still, I'm struck by the fact that they turn to, they try to domesticate this God. It's one way that we try to control the situation um, is let, let's form our own image of him instead of letting ourselves be formed as God's living image. Let's form these images into our image and likeness and thus maintain control and well, control and, our fear. And mm-hmm. it's... To some extent, there's this cultural idea of controlling God, but in some extent, it's also, and we do this ourselves, if I can make this statue of God, that that I know it's there and I can carry it with me from place to place, then I can be assured that God will be with me and I don't have to, to trust what I don't see. I can see it, therefore I know, oh, look, I can see him over there in the tent. God is with me. And God is asking for a, a different kind of intimacy that doesn't rely on on visual stimuli. Yes. And now let me say, and and this, I say yes, even as I'm quite aware, we've been talking about the importance of seeing God, Mm -hmm. that, that, that an encounter with God, this knowledge of God is integral to, um, the vocation of sonship. And that's a vocation Oops, not simply for the benefit of the of of the individual, but for the world. But I, what I want to get to is when we spoke about divine wrath, in my book, I do acknowledge the uh, multiple references to divine wrath. But we uh, I, following scripture and my four guides, heal the eyes of our hearts so that we can see divine wrath correctly. It is God, it's a modality of God's love. When he hides his face, here's that, he hides his face, he becomes invisible. What should I say? He conceals himself as a, a strategic maneuver to enable his beloved to collaborate with him in this interplay of love that will assert itself, that'll counter sin and transform sin from within. We're just... We're just touching the surface. Yeah. We're just beginning the conversation. But I wanted to get that in, that the wrath of God is in play, but it must be purified of, of uh, the, this distorted understanding uh, of uh, a violent anger that's devoid of love mm-hmm. and that is ego-driven. That's not the, the wrath of God as it is, as it is played out in other work of atonement. Not at all. We're talking today with Dr. Margaret Turek, who's the author of the book, Atonement, Soundings in Biblical Trinitarian and Spiritual Theology. There is so much to this topic, and we're going to get as much of it in as we can, but we're going to do it right after this break. Don't go anywhere. There is so much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. 
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today with Dr. Margaret Turek. She's the academic dean and professor of dogmatics at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. We're talking about her book, Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology, available right now on Ignatius Press. And we're talking about having a proper image of God and our relationship to him, because having that proper understanding of God helps us understand everything else. It helps us understand what it means uh, to be redeemed, how God redeems us, what our sin does, and how it separates us from God. And just at the end of the break, you were talking about uh, our misunderstandings with the wrath of God. Yes. Um, and and I think part of this can be uh, we, rather than uh, interpreting our human fatherhood through the fatherhood of God, we very often interpret the fatherhood of God through our experience with human fatherhood. Yes. And human fatherhood, you know, uh, I have uh, a number of children. My wife and I have nine. And sometimes it gets a little bit overwhelming because <laughs> I am not omnipotent. Uh-huh. Uh, and so there, there is this, uh, this propensity to respond in a way that, that doesn't show forth the the love of God. It doesn't mirror God in that way. And so we see God's wrath, or we see God's anger that burns against people, as we see in Scripture. We see that as a reaction towards the person and not towards the situation. That, oh, I have to keep God from being angry with me, so I have to avoid sin because otherwise God's going to be angry with me, rather than understanding that the, the anger of God is towards, I think, and correct me, please, the anger of God is towards the situation that has separated us from him and not towards us for the action. Yes. God, God's, well, God's wrath is the form that God's love takes when it encounters whatever is opposed to and hardened against the designs of his love. And, and so God's what God's, this side of the eschaton, God's wrath is his zeal to carry out the plans of his love for you and for every one of his creatures. His wrath, again, it's the form that his love takes whenever his love encounters opposition, hardness of heart, a hostility to love. And love's designs. Its aim is not to destroy the beloved, as you were uh, pointing to. The aim of God's wrath is the is the self-same aim as God's love. It is to bring you to a conversion of heart and to uh, the newfound freedom of the children of God. It's it's a it aims to deliver you from your sinfulness and overcome all the consequences, all the baneful effects of sin in this world. I think uh, as you're talking, it reminds me of the passage in Jeremiah that everyone's so fond of quoting, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. And we read that as a as a proof quote, and we just 
say it out loud that I know the plans I have for you, says the, says the Lord, plans for your good and not for your harm, plans to bring you a future and a hope. And we're like, oh, we can put it on our walls and feel really nice about that. And it's all warm and fuzzy. But that's the follow-up to the, I'm about to send you into exile. Yes. Yes. And all that notwithstanding, I know the plans I have for you. And while yes. you may interpret them as harm, these are plans for your good and for your ultimate deliverance. Uh, and so even in that moment where someone could say, oh, look at the look at the uh, very harsh punishment of God, uh, for, for God, this is a redemptive work and bringing about the redemption of his people and bringing them back to him and back into that intimacy, uh, rather than this, I'm going to hold you at arm's length because I don't trust you, God. It's in that moment of testing and in that exile that they're going to be able, he's not sending them away from him. He's sending them away from their comfort so that he can be with them in their discomfort. Yes. Yes, that's beautifully put, TL. And as you were speaking, I was mindful of another passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, 25, where the Lord says, Zion shall be redeemed by judgment. That redemption takes place through God's act of wrathful judgment. And in my study of sacred scripture and of the catechism and of uh, especially the theological teaching of my four guides, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Hansers von Balthasar, and Father Norbert Hoffman, I come to I came to understand that God's God's wrath is again the form that God's love takes and it's it's signaled in the scriptures when God hides his face when the people on their part suffer the experience of God's absence God goes incognito God, but why does God turn away his face? As we said, it's an act of judgment in as much as if God's aim, the only thing God does as a loving father is to father his living images. Mm -hmm. Once we turn away from God and become counterfeit sons, God cannot, he must, if you will, in some respect, disassociate himself from false counterfeit images. You know, he chose Israel to know him, to turn to him, to see him, and in seeing him to mirror him and thus reveal him to the world, to be his authentic, genuine images in this fallen world. When those images go counterfeit, when they go bad, God cannot act as if nothing has happened. He must, in some respect, signal the falseness of the of Israel and their path of sonship. If I'm making sense, well, and so, so we, we see we yes. see this even in, in I think it's First Timothy, First uh, Timothy, where he says. Um, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot uh, yes. be faithless to himself. Yes, but he, God, at the same time, God, God cannot, in, in the Old Testament, whenever God has his face turned toward Israel, it's, it's God, if you will, approving, saying, yes, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, all you nations, to Israel. But when Israel turns away and no longer sees God truly and therefore uh, wrongly uh, represents God before the nations, God has to signal both to his fallen away corrupt sons their wrongness as well as kind of signal to the nations this you will not know me in this counterfeit son you cannot see me when Israel goes corrupt and so God if you will in, in the Old Testament he'll he turns his face away he no longer endorses the son who he, this nation he has set up as his living image he must hide his face turn his face away if you will to show that basically he's discrediting israel but does that the, make sense yeah even the language there that you're using though and that scripture uses of turning the face away yes uh doesn't denote distance right no. so so god is still close at hand even though we say how long O lord will you turn your face forever there, there is still a proximity. God is, God is forever. You will be my people and I will be your God. And he repeats that over and over and over again. And that closeness is always there, even in those moments of, of uh, disassociation. Yes. And if, if we have a moment, I would love to uh, make reference to Hosea chapter two, where we see this dyna dynamic played out so wonderfully. You know, it's Israel that forsakes the Lord by running after idols. And, you know, the people have abandoned God. They've rebelled against him. They fled from him. And on his side, the Lord lets the people endure the God-forsaken state they have chosen for themselves. He lets, he the forsaken God, he lets his people suffer his seeming absence. And in concrete historical terms, the Lord hands his people over to the power of Assyria and they're exiled there too in 722. But notice who does the forsaking? It's really the people. They choose by turning away from God. They choose to forsake God. They choose a God-forsaken state. Initially, God respects the freedom that he has that he himself has given his people. So he he in, in a certain way initially says, "All right, You've chosen a God-forsaken state for yourselves. There are consequences to that. If you've abandoned me, you have now rendered yourself vulnerable to foreign powers. Mm -hmm. All right? You have forsaken my protection. But in the, the very next movement, God, it's so beautiful, God it says, I'm going to, I'm going to hide myself, conceal myself as I accompany you into exile, into yeah. the God-forsaken state that you chose. So you're absolutely right, T.L., that God's forgiving love, he's always already forgiving them. Mm -hmm. And he's going in advance of Israel as he's leading them into exile. Even though they've chosen that God-forsaken state, notice God will never, he'll never abdicate his primary role, his paramount role. He takes the initiative. 
So though they sinned against him, they forsook him. He takes the lead and goes incognito and in hidden fashion, concealing himself, he leads them into exile where he's going to speak to them. He says, I will lead her. I will lead her into the wilderness, the God forsaken state they've chosen and speak persuasively to her. And there she will respond to me as in the days of her youth. So their God, as you said, his love is, is always already forgiving. It's going in advance of his people. But what is he doing? His, his plan of redemption is leading them through an event of judgment. They must face the consequences of their sins and do so in such a way, though, that they don't do it alone. God goes in advance of them. He accompanies them constantly, albeit while hiding his face, so that they will come, so that God, when he rekindles love in their hearts, love for him, the love, the filial love he rekindles in their hearts will be sufficient to bear the consequences of their sin the seeming absence of God, the, the God-forsaken state they chose. Now, this is a paradox, and your, your listeners are probably going, what? But, <laughs> but in conversation, we're going, in the book, I very carefully uh, trace the steps of this divine dance, if you will, mm-hmm. this, this interplay of love between father and son, lover and beloved. And you'll see that, again, what... What God does, even even before in this the book of the prophet Isaiah, his first move is to show his own heartache. His first move, remember how the father, we have to seek, the, the father shows his love and then means thereby to engender a mirroring love, an imaging love in his beloved. So when Hosea, the prophet of the book, opens, God is showing to Israel his heartache. He is the husband who's been betrayed by, uh, remember, the harlot wife. He's the father in chapter 11 that faces an ungrateful son. And he says, though I, I, I have done all this for you, I've led you with bonds of love. And yet, the, the, more, I, the more I reached out for you, the, the more I cared for you, the further you fled from me. So God is showing that he is first in suffering the felt absence of his beloved son turned sinner. You see, love, it's love love that the power of love that's going to deal with sin. But this power of love, even and initially on the part of God, is a love that, that uses its power to suffer the distance that sin causes between lover and beloved. And God suffers that first. And he's going to empower his beloved to be his mirror image and suffer that distance, that sin-wrought estrangement. But now in filial love, a love that God constantly engenders in his beloved. Well, and that that love, and even in the, the the exile and the turning the face away and the everything else, that love is always for the for a medicinal purpose. It's, yes, here is the specific medicinal act that is going to give you what you need to see what it is that you truly need. Yes, to see me truly, 
and and to thereby image me if I, on my part, am willing to keep my heart open and suffer through your forsaking me, suffer through the distance between us that your sin has wrought by showing you my divine heartache. I'm going to incite in you and give you my spirit to enable you to mirror uh, this power of divine love to face sin and bear it unto sin's atonement, to bear it away, to transform it one from within. We could do parts two, three, four, oh and gosh. five on this. There's just so much, so much to this mystery of atonement. The book is called Atonement, Soundings in Biblical, Trinitarian, and Spiritual Theology by Dr. Mar- Margaret Turek. It's available on Ignatius Press. We are going to continue this conversation on our Patreon segment. You can go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link uh, to learn more Dr. Turek, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome, TL. God bless you. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Turek, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as I mentioned, we did continue this conversation over on our Patreon segment. We talked for almost 28 extra minutes as we jumped into the New Testament and continued exploring the depths of this mystery of the atonement. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air by covering costs associated with with, uh, our equipment, with the ongoing fees for hosting and recording. Uh, And in gratitude, we like to give them a couple of extra questions with our guest and a deeper dive into the topic. If you want to learn more about that community, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, look through some of those older segments that are now available to the public, and consider being a part of that community. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, the catechism, original language research, biblical commentaries, magisterial documents, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today should come as no surprise. We're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. And here John the Evangelist unpacks for us, or, or rather lays out for us, the mystery of the atonement, that God in his love sent his Son for the purpose of reconciling the world, not to condemn the world, but to reconcile the world to himself. The world might be saved through him. Then at the end there, he also gives us a little examination of conscience to look and to ask ourselves, am I walking 
as someone who is redeemed by Christ or not? Am I loving darkness rather than light? Am I hating the light because I don't want my works to come to light? Or am I walking in the light so that it may be clearly seen that my works have been carried out in God? This is something that I think would be a great thing to examine each and every day, to at the end of the day, do a short little examine and say, God, have I, have I walked in the redemption today? And what joy it is that that gift is reoffered to us each and every day, that God comes and gives himself to us that we can be reconciled to him. Our reading today from Church History I got to by going to Verbum, and there's a special feature there called the Catholic Topical Index. I typed in the word atonement, and it gave me a list of multiple fathers of the church and what they had said about atonement, as well as passages of scripture and catechism links and all the others. And I came across one that I had not read before. This is from the letter to Diognetus. It came from around AD 130, and it is an an anonymous letter, uh, one of the earliest examples we have of apologetics. In it, we read, God showed himself to men. Not one of them has seen or known him. He revealed himself by means of faith, for by this alone it is possible to see God. For God, the Lord and creator of all, who made all things and set them in order, was not merely a lover of mankind, but was full of compassion, mild and good, calm and true. He always was and is and will be. He alone is good. The great and ineffable idea which he conceived, he communicated to his son alone. For a time, indeed, he kept the plan of his wisdom to himself and guarded it as a mystery. And thus he seemed to have no care and thought for us. But... When through his beloved Son he removed the veil and revealed what he had prepared from the beginning, he gave us all at once participation in his gifts, the graces of being able to see and understand things beyond our expectations. In himself and with his Son, his providence had all things arranged. If for a time before he came, he allowed us to be carried along by our whims and inordinate desires, to be led astray by pleasures and lusts, it was in no sense because he took any joy from our sins. He merely permitted them. He did not approve of the period of our wickedness in the past. He was merely preparing the present reign of grace. He wanted us, who in times past by our sins were convicted of being unworthy, to become now, by the goodness of God, worthy of life. He wanted us, who proved that by ourselves we could not enter into the kingdom of heaven, to become able, by the power of God, to enter in. Once the measure of our sin had become full and overflowing, and it was perfectly clear that nothing but punishment and death could be expected as the wages of sin, the time came which God had foreordained. Henceforth, he would reveal his goodness and grace, and oh, how exceeding great is God's love and friendship for men. Instead of hating us and rejecting us and remembering our sins, he was compassionate and patient, and took upon himself our sins. 
He gave us his own Son for our redemption. For us who were sinful, he gave up the Holy One. For the wicked, the innocent one. The just one for the unjust. The incorruptible one for corruptible men. And for us mortals, the immortal one. For what else but his righteousness could have concealed our sin? In whom, if not in the only Son of God, could we lawless and sinful men have been justified? What a sweet exchange! What an inexplicable achievement! What unexpected graces! That in one who is just, the sin of many should be concealed. That the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. In the former time, he proved the inability of our nature to obtain life, and now he has revealed a Savior capable of saving the incapable. For both these reasons, he wanted us to believe in his goodness and to look upon him as guardian, father, teacher, advisor, and physician, as our mind, light, honor, glory, strength, and life and to have no solicitude about what we wear and eat. This faith, if only you desire it, you can have. And first of all, the knowledge of the Father. For God loved men, and for their sake made the world and made all things on earth subject to them. He gave them their reason and their mind. Them alone he allowed to look up to heaven. He fashioned them in his own image. To them he sent his only begotten Son. To them he promised the kingdom which is in heaven, and he will give it to those who love him. And with what joy do you think you will be filled when you come to know these things? And how you will love him who first loved you so much. And when you love him, you will be an imitator of his goodness. And do not be surprised that a man may become an imitator of God. He can do so because God wills it. That reading comes from early 2nd century, around A.D. 130, from an anonymous letter to Diognetus. And remember, this isn't just a New Testament play that God tried to scramble and figure out, how do I handle this? Do I love the people or, or am I angry at them? all the way back in the very first time that he announces his name to his people. Back in Exodus 34, he says his name is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That God has always planned on pursuing us, and reconciling us back to himself, that we would be sharers in his divine nature. Take heart, be of good cheer, and know that God loves you. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Brandy Carey and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.